today, as we see it, regulation doesn't go far enough. Around 10% of the, of the path to net zero could happen this decade. The platform are being launched by the government that will further drive that ESG awareness. Hello, those voices are some of the contributors to Fidelity's ESG analyst survey, and the report itself makes startling reading. Put simply, too many companies are still not on track to meet their carbon net zero targets. I'll be joined by some of Fidelity's investment team to dig around the findings and to discuss what they mean for the world around us. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, this is the third year that Fidelity has carried out the ESG survey of 123 equity, private credit and fixed income analysts. And by now, some patterns are beginning to emerge as attitudes and behaviours change. Well, Gita Bell is here in the studio with me. Welcome to you. You're the head of fixed income research, marshalling a battalion of uh, analysts. What's the top line for you? For me, the top line is um, that as we approach 2030 and the first date where where I think we'd like to see a number of our companies um, achieving their net zero targets, we're not doing enough. Um, I think that the, the capex spend that that companies are putting behind a net zero transition is um, so far insufficient for 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 2030 goals. Um, I'd also say the the regulation is another aspect where our analysts are really saying they need to see more regulation and government incentives to have an effective transition on on sustainability metrics. So don't get me wrong, I think there's still a lot of positives to take from the survey in terms of the seriousness with respect to um, how focused our investor community really is on this as an area. But we need to do more. Definitely a change in tone from uh, from last year when we were sitting in the studio. But dialed in from our Singapore studio is portfolio manager Dananjay Fadnis. DJ, you use the analyst research in your investing. Did anything surprise you this year? Yeah, I kind of saw it. Uh, saw some positives in the survey uh, from my perspective, especially when you think about uh, engagement, where you look at the couple of questions we asked around company responsiveness and engagement effectiveness. And, and Japan and China clearly stand out where versus the last few years, this year we are clearly seeing a remarkable jump in what our analysts are seeing as being effective engagement. For example, in China, the last couple of years is kind of hovering around the 30% mark, but this year we're seeing 50%. Uh, so 50% of the engagements are being seen as effective and moving in the right direction. Um, so this is one area where investors often perceive Asia as being a laggard in terms of our ability to invest with these companies. And we're seeing the complete opposite where we are having a very fruitful engagement and discussion with many, many companies. But I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Does um, what you're seeing in this survey, does it chime with the conversations that you're having with management teams as you travel around Asia? Yeah, exactly. I think we're definitely seeing very positive um, signals and engagement from companies. Now, one thing to highlight, though, is Asia is not one homogeneous region. So different countries operate at a slightly different speeds. Uh, so some com- countries and some companies make remarkable progress, but the other ones are kind of laggards. If I had to kind of generalize uh, my assessment, is we're still very early in terms of having these conversations. A lot of the conversations are just around awareness and measurement and disclosures still not quite yet in the realm of target setting and moving towards those targets. But, you know, very positive signs of where things are going here. 
Well, let's um, take a look at the main survey now, and the results don't make comfortable reading when it comes to progress towards net zero. Now, Gita, we did see this pattern beginning to emerge last year. The closer we get to a deadline, the more obvious it is how much more still needs to be done. So does it mean that the analysts realise that company targets are beyond reach, really, particularly when we're looking at 2030? I mean, that's, uh, that's not long away. So the first thing that I think is important to say is that our analysts are saying that over 50% of the companies that they cover have net zero goals. No surprise there. 70% um, of the companies in Europe have net zero goals, only 26% in, in China, although that is a big increase. So the, 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 there's a, people are aware of the problem and they've actually got as far as having come up with a framework on how they might on make target. progress. Yep. But I think that what we're finding is that as the dates do get closer, the level of investment required to achieve a goal by a given date goes up. And ultimately we have a a small decline in analysts saying that there is enough CapEx being spent to achieve net zero by 2030. Um, but we still have a great majority of our analysts saying that by 2050, there's enough spending going on to achieve that 2015 um, uh, net zero target. I'm tempted to quote Henry VIII saying tomorrow never comes, but um, let's, let's, let's seize on the positive for now. And we're going to hear from one of the analysts directly who's got a little bit more to say on this topic. Jonathan Neve is a senior credit analyst and he covers the airline sector. Well, there's an industry whose emissions are still growing at 5% a year. Here's what he's got to say. I estimate around 10% of the, of the path to net zero could happen this decade. That's mainly going to be reliant on airlines investing in new, more fuel-efficient aircraft, but also starting to use sustainable aviation fuel. All of the airlines that I cover do have net zero plans by 2050. The key problem is that the technology to get there does not exist yet, so they're very, very reliant on governments and other companies to help them get there. So, Gita, they're making commitments based on technology that doesn't even exist yet. I'm tempted to say it's on a wing and a prayer. Um, are these net zero targets realistic, if you take airlines as an example, as Jonathan set out? Look, I think if you take airlines as an example, there is a lot of spending being done to achieve those net zero targets. Um, there are clear plans for various different types of aircraft that are available, like electric aircraft and, and um, the sustainable aviation fuel. However, it is going to take more time to make those technologies both effective and scalable. And that is the challenge that we see coming across from lots of different sectors. It is no surprise that our communications and our information technology analysts are saying that their companies are spending enough to achieve their um, earlier net zero ambitions, 2030 and the like. That's partly due to some of these companies like Microsoft having very big ambitions about what they want to achieve. But it's also partly due to the nature of the industries in which they um, are, are participating. I think when you contrast that with the companies that are really lagging, it's, it's energy companies, it's airlines, and those are the ones that are much more reliant on transformative technology to get us to achieve those net zero ambitions. DJ, let me come to you. Does it worry you that companies are making promises that they literally cannot keep uh, with current technology? Does it expose a company to risks um, that are hard to, to quantify? 
I think what the phase we are in, you know, I think companies are expressing intent. So I think the intent is they want to align with um, with a lot of these goals, especially think about countries like India and China, which have national goals. Those goals are now being broken down into short-term goals like 2030 goals and, and even shorter. And what we are seeing is companies now want to align with that national objective. So they have expressed intent, they've put it out there. And I think the work of assessing what it entails is just sort of going on. And you're absolutely right. I think as time goes by, companies will realize that it's actually a much more difficult ask in terms of getting there. Um, and, and that's when you'll have to see a step up in CapEx. Um, you'll have to see a step up in technologies, which help them get there. But I think we probably need to see that, I think at least directionally, things are moving the right direction. And they're going to have to adjust to different economic environments as well. Um, because Gita, if I come back to you, Fidelity's base case at the moment is for a recession soon in the United States and economies in other parts of the world are weak too. As those conditions become tougher for companies, do you see sustainability dropping down the list of their priorities? If we take as our base case a more natural type of recession, slight increases in is in unemployment and um, lower economic productivity, I don't think this slips off the agenda. However, we are already seeing in sectors like real estate, which is experiencing um, profound financial challenge on a global basis, um, this slipping down their list of priorities. And I think that when you are fighting for your survival as a company or as a sector, that is when the, the moment to focus on sustainability probably doesn't feel like it's right now. So in an extreme case, um, but but in a in a sort of normal cyclical recession, you think it, it's it's ingrained enough now to survive? I think that's right. But I also think we need to take the different sector approaches. There are definitely challenged sectors out there that are going to be unable to focus on this as much as other sectors will be able to. And, and DJ, um, in Asia, well, in China, for example, real estate, we know has been going through a, a pretty terrible time. And other economies in Asia do seem to be having a much better time at the moment. So, uh, you know, are you seeing sustainability feature more highly in management agendas? Yeah, definitely is. But, you know, just going back to the earlier question, you know, we've had quite a few challenges. You highlighted the macroeconomic environment, uh, which is definitely an issue. But if you think about it, you know, Russia, Ukraine and the disruption to energy markets, that was an issue. Even COVID before that also kind of delayed things versus where the intention was. And as the kind of dust settles and as we kind of look at a more normalized environment, hopefully, you know, uh, the recession isn't one which uh, causes further change in plans. We will start to see companies invest and go forward in a direction which is somewhat delayed in many cases. Now, to, to your question about different parts of Asia, you know, we are seeing a slowdown in China. Um, but, you know, we also seeing at the same time uh, a recovery in India as well as Indonesia, which seems quite strong um, and, and so far looks like it's uh, carrying momentum. Uh, but on the whole, you know, you can't escape the fact that when the world economy is slowing down and when China is slowing down, the effect will be much more broad based and the rest of Asia will also, um, you know, have to face the consequences of that slowdown. So I, I agree with Keita, you know, we're going to see some recalibration, um, but it'll have to be, we'll have to think about this by sector, by companies, by region and different uh, outcomes for different uh, sectors. Well, you mentioned China. Um, let's have a little bit more from there. We're going to hear from Teresa Zhou, who's an analyst and portfolio manager covering Chinese industrial companies. 
China government has set a clear、uh, target to reach the peak carbon emission and also the carbon neutrality. There are also a lot of initiatives, including you know carbon、uh, trading and carbon credit,、uh, and or even carbon exchange. Launch in China, and those are still in the initial phase. But we do think、uh, there are more tools, and also the platform are being launched by the government、uh, that will further,、uh, you know, drive that ESG awareness and also better ESG practice. So, DJ, that that sort of chimes with what you're saying as well, doesn't it? You know, if you think about、uh, Asia, even specific to China, there are a few factors which are kind of pushing us in that direction, or pushing companies in that direction. I should say, you know, one is around regulation, where you can see different stock exchange regulators are mandating different levels of disclosures.、Um, then you've got the government, which of course has a very top-down target and and wants that to be achieved. But also, consumers of companies are much more aware of different practices that are going on in、uh, of how companies make their products or how they go on with their operations. So the consumer themselves are demanding a higher level of sustainability and ESG adherence.、Uh, and finally, it's investors like us also have、uh, a role to play in. Kind of pushing、uh, companies to do the right thing, and I think all these factors are coming together. So、uh, Asia is definitely、uh, being propelled in that direction. One of the key findings of this year's survey was the need for more and better regulation to bring about change. Here's sustainable investing analyst Harriet Wildgoose. And one of the key areas I would flag where regulation is misaligned with net zero and nature goals. Is within the food industry.、Um, the food industry as a whole contributes around a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. You know, it has certainly been rising up the agenda from a regulatory perspective, as we've seen from COP27 and COP15.、Um, but today, as we see it, regulation doesn't go far enough. But regulatory change is, is certainly on the horizon with the EU deforestation regulations and with the global biodiversity framework and what that might mean. Well, Gita, that's one example related to the food sector. But what else did our analysts say when it comes to the part that regulation can play? Our analysts are clearly saying that whether it is about the environment or whether it is about the social pillar of our sustainability goals, government regulation and government incentives are the most effective ways to drive change, and that I think is is profound. Investor action is important. It has a role to play. Consumer action, as DJ's already referenced, is important and has a role to play. But if you really want to achieve、um, the environmental and social goals that we have, we need common standards, a set of regulations and objectives that we are trying to、um, achieve, and financial incentives to achieve those things.、Um, and and for what it's worth, our our analysts did say ninety eight percent of our analysts said. That regulation helps accelerate progress towards sustainability goals. Zero percent of them said it was a hindrance, and only two percent said it wasn't helping in any way. So, really big message about regulation and the role it has to play. Well, Gita, as you say, that is a very clear finding, and presumably this is something to do with clearing up uncertainty, which is the thing that we always say that、um, companies and, and markets don't like when. Governments are able to step in with regulation and incentives, the carrots and the sticks.、Um, that that clarifies things for、um, for investors and for companies. 
I think that's exactly right. I think that is what we need is common standards, a little bit of clarity around what we're trying to do. As a nice, simple example that came out of the survey, um, only 26% of the companies that we cover are currently using carbon markets as a part of their net zero ambitions. If we talk to our analysts, what do they say? They say, actually, if those carbon markets functioned a little bit better, they had um, more clear price mechanisms, et cetera, et cetera. We and if would, they worked internationally. And if they worked internationally, we would end up with a much higher usage and a much more effective uh, mechanism for using carbon markets. And that is just one small example. We can come up with plenty of them for biodiversity, for, for social issues like um, diversity and inclusion. Um, there are countless examples of the role that government has to play. Just give us a little bit of a temperature gauge here. Um, how close are we to achieving that sort of international cooperation? I think that depends a lot on the factor that you're talking about. Something like greenhouse gas emissions and, and our efforts to combat climate change, much more international consensus um, and much more appropriate for international action um, on something like climate change than, for example, something like biodiversity, which may have a need for very localized rules and regulations around something like that. So and I guess also greenhouse gas emissions are much easier to measure compared with biodiversity. And we've, we've done some work on that. A hundred percent. And then on the social side, what I would just say is, is obviously um, different countries, different um, areas around the world have different issues when it comes to diversity, equity and inclusion and also different standards of what they'd like to achieve. And so very similarly, I think it's much harder to set a big broad international standard of this is what good looks like um, for, for something like diversity, equity and inclusion. So there's nuance there. Yeah. DJ, can you shed some light on the conversations that you have when you go into a company and you know these topics crop up? Um, what's the reception like and what are the topics that you, you try to raise? Yeah, if I had to uh, classify the topics broadly, you know, I think there's just two types of conversations we have. One is around kind of the broader ESG matters, uh, but there's also a lot of discussion around proxy voting. Tends to Proxy voting tends to affect the governance side, but we are playing uh, a significant role in trying to uh, get companies to move in a direction which uh, brings about better governance. And as shareholders, we are exercising our right uh, through pro the proxy voting mechanism. But the, but the former one, which is the ESG one now, that totally depends on the issues each company is facing. Um, and these can be very, very different issues. Um, in some companies, we would be talking about supply chains, um, diversity, um, and data privacy as social pillars. But we're also looking at, in some companies, um, emission-related disclosures and targets. Uh, and like Geeta was saying, some companies have an emissions issue, but the other ones, you know, tech companies, for example, may or may not have as significant an issue as, as an energy company. So it totally depends on what the issues at, at hand are. Um, and it's a whole wide range of topics and it is very much catered to the company's issues. We will usually make suggestions on where the company should be going. And it's a continuous process. So, you know, six months to eight months later, we are sitting again with the company trying to understand what they've done so far. And again, you know, playing our role as a constructive partner uh, in helping companies uh, make that journey. So difficult to generalise on the topics, and I completely understand that, that each company is going to be unique in the, the challenges that, it's, uh, that it faces. But perhaps you could um, describe whether the trend over the past few years is such that you feel you're knocking on an open door, that people are welcoming these discussions and that they're wanting to, to make progress across the board, um, or do you still think that there are pockets where you're 
worried about the lack of progress? You know, there'll always be small pockets where the companies are not yet responding to engagement. But I would say the overwhelming majority of companies in Asia are having a very constructive dialogue with us. I'll, I'll give you two examples. You know, one is uh, China's largest, one of the largest dairy companies. And, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of diversity on the board. And we actually had a chat with them and voted against them in the, in the shareholder resolutions. The company took that seriously and they have now uh, appointed directors to the board and continue to make improvements there. Um, the other issue we engaged with them quite significantly was around deforestation. Uh, very recently, this company has gone out and made a pledge around deforestation. I think it's one of China's first companies to do that. Um, the other engagement we're having right now is around with Indian banks um, who don't really have a climate policy in place. And we're actually working with them at a very early stage for them to implement that policy in their lending practices. Again, you know, very constructive dialogue. And we are quite hopeful that this does lead uh, these companies to move down a positive uh, track. Quite uh, encouraging um, stories that you, you were telling there. D do you actually make changes to your portfolio based on um, these types of conversations? Yeah, it is definitely a very important input. If you think about the way I or way all of us as, as PMs would look at companies uh, from a sustainability lens, we would say there are two aspects to every investment, right? Which is what are the risks and what are the rewards in terms of creation of value? And actually ESG inputs into both these aspects. A company which is improving on ESG, taking care of wider stakeholders, mitigating risks around emissions, for example, is actually reducing risk to the business. It makes them a more sustainable enterprise going into the next you know, 10, 20 years. At the same time, many of these companies will also end up being uh, value creators because they just move so far ahead of their competition, uh, whether it appeals to regulators or customers or investors, there is a value creation and value recognition that can happen uh, when it comes to stock markets. So we're trying to capture both of these. So yes, it's a very important input um, into our process and uh, it's, a, it's a continuous process. So we keep fine tuning our approach as we go along. Almost 40% of our interactions with companies include some level of ESG engagement. While governance still dominates and is, is a key element of, of our, our obligations to, to our clients, um, and we, we focus on that, greenhouse gas emissions and um, diversity, equity, and inclusion are now big components of our ESG engagement topics. And when we look ahead to the year in front of us, what we are seeing is a lot of other topics, biodiversity, just transition, are going up in our level of, of profile for, for, for our engagements in the year ahead. The other point that I wanted to make is, is I think DJ really eloquently talked about the role that voting has to play in, in what we do as investors. But obviously, our analyst survey is talking to fixed income and private credit analysts as well, many of whom um, don't um, cover companies with listed equity. And what I have found is a lot of those companies that are privately held that's also pushing on an open door, even though we're not shareholders, even though we don't have that kind of vote, because they are so keen to engage in these topics and to know what good looks like, that I think there's a real role to play in private markets around um, how do we improve um, uh, improve our overall sustainability credentials as, as, as um, an investment community. 
well, material there, I think, Gita, for an entire podcast. We'll have to come back, back to that another time because we're almost out of time, but not before we play the Rich Pickings part of game, Hot Cakes and Hot Potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Gita, let me come to you first. Um, so my hot cake is, I think, in the wake of everything that happened with SVB and with Credit Suisse, that um, euro and sterling denominated financials look very attractive. And uh, that would be my hot cake. My hot potato would be I'm going to stick with the sustainability theme. And um, in the past, we've talked about um, the E and the G. This time, I'm going to say the S. And I would be looking really at the entire supply chain of companies and those companies that are not focused on the S and not doing an effective job, I would I would drop those like a hot potato. Because you think it's a risk or because you think they're going to get caught out? <laughs> Both. But I think it's a risk <laughs> that they're going to get caught out. <laughs> right. Okay. And DJ, how about you? Yeah, in terms of hot cakes, I would say driving change through engagement as a broader sort of aspect of things. I think I'm, I'm very bullish on that. And I think the industry and investors like us have a strong role to play in that. So in Asia, we're just getting started with that. So a uh, long way to go on that one. And I'm, I'm quite bullish on that part. Um, in terms of hot potato, you know, I think like we discussed in the podcast, um, there's a lot of companies which have made a lot of um, plans and targets out there. And I think soon as time goes, we'll realize which companies have just been, um, you know, talking about it versus which ones are actually walking the talk. And the companies uh, which haven't done much, uh, despite having these big targets and goals, which they sort of publicly announced, I think those would be, you know, hot, hot potatoes where the market will make a big differentiation on these companies and call them out and potentially derate them as well. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. That's all the time we have for this month. So thank you to Gita and DJ for joining me and to all of our analysts who contributed to the uh, to the survey. You can read the full results uh, on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, then please do share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The producers today were Holly Eastman and Steve Gardner with technical production from Connor Bailey, Kim Juko and Callum Blitz. From all of us at Fidelity for now, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.